Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. Brant Myers shoots straight. It used to be Jack Daniels. Now it's the true tale of living large as an NHLer who played 154 games from 1994 to 2003. But as he says in his new book, Painkiller, Memoir of Big League Addiction, released in, on February 16th, he really didn't play hockey since his early days of junior in Portland. Whether it was for the team that drafted him, the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Philadelphia Flyers, San Jose Sharks, Nashville, Washington or Boston, Meyer's sole role was as a hired gun, an enforcer, an ice guardian, keeping the other teams in check and ensuring no one took liberties with his stars. And like several players in his fraternity, the pressures and impact of the role seemed to lend, lend itself to excess when it came to drugs and alcohol. Myers was suspended four times and eventually banned from the NHL. Unlike some of those players, when he hit the bottom, it didn't take him six feet under. And he lived to tell about it. How it started, where it went, and what the future could hold. Why there is a future is because of Myers' untapped ingenuity that emerged in recovery. He went to school, learned the science behind addiction, and then offered his services to the NHL to assist players. Being someone who could understand their issues firsthand, and as it turned out, the LA Kings were in the market after well-publicized issues with key members from their Stanley Cup winning teams of 2012 and 2014. When he was a kid, Brant Myers never imagined an NHL career, especially one where his sole job was to fight. When he was in the NHL, living like a rock star until it almost ended his life, he never imagined he would live to tell about it, let alone realize his dream of helping others. Nate? Yeah, as a con now as a content warning, this uh, book and this episode, you know, has discussions of intergenerational trauma and intimate partner violence. Uh, that was, you know, part of the reality of you know of Brant Myers' uh, probably first three and a half decades on on Earth when he was staring into the abyss of addiction, you know, over and over so often, you know, through early adulthood. Uh, one can imagine Myers' memoir will likely have a very high frequently bought together similarity score with Derek Sanderson and Kevin Shea's collaboration crossing the line from 2013. You know, both stories of players who easily could have been the one who uttered that line from the dark comedy Loudermilk, hurting yourself is easy, living is hard. Myers had the drive to realize the hockey dream, and it seems like Sanderson, it was sort of pinned to winning the respect of their father. You know, even before Sanderson and Shea wrote that, their book, I knew the story of how Derek Sanderson's father used to keep all his son's stitches in a jar after they were removed, and when he collected 200, he tossed them out because that meant Derek had proved he was a man. Now, I've consulted with uh, friends who have sired tiny humans, and they indicate this is not considered uh, good dadding in uh, 2021. But a commonality, at least to the reader, is you know Myers and Sanderson both got what they thought they wanted by their early 20s. And then only to find out it was too much, too soon, and they did not have all of their leaks plugged. Uh, but Myers, you know, after working through that over and over, as in the book describes, you know, how he went to, you know, rehabilitation several times before it finally took, uh, he worked to be a force of change. There, there's no single best way, way to do that after going through recovery. Uh, and as an observer, you should just root for the person to, to, to be able to make it and rewire themselves. You know, speaking from, you know, my perspective as someone who's, you know, seen friends go through struggles, uh, the result of Painkiller is a very brutally honest book. Uh, you know, the depictions really help understand where Myers comes from, uh, you know, what was, you know, in his, in his family history, you know, and it's also refreshing that he doesn't, you know, excuse his own behavior, you know, how, you know, like how he mistreated women in his life, such as, you know, his sister and girlfriends you know now we're not the arbiters about how to feel about someone who's you know worked to have second chances but i i really connect that to the terms that the actress uh, selma hayek delineated recently on wtf with mark Marin when she talked about surviving you know toxic people in the entertainment industry and her line was i believe in consequences so that you can really deserve a second chance and understand what's good and what's bad and what's real and what's not real that's uh, Brant Myers is probably in the 99th percentile of people who understand that, and he's definitely earned his uh, redemption. Uh, you can also sort of link his story, since he is a Métis with a familial tie to Frog Lake First Nation, with what 
you know, indigenous and Inuit healers and thinkers have been telling us for many years about the effects of the cycle of, you know, intergenerational violence, you know, exacerbated by Canadian governments, you know, very problematic approach to partnering with uh, indigenous and Inuit nations. That's definitely, you know, something that's tied to, you know, how Myers grew up and, and it's notable he's tried to do his part to support indigenous youth. He had the Greater Strides Hockey Academy in Alberta, which he started when he realized there were 33 hockey academies in Alberta and none of them had that component to them. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, something to take into consideration as, you know, reconciliation becomes, I'd say, one of the top two uh, priorities of for Canada as a nation. Uh, the other one obviously being, you know, keeping out some of the wackadoodle American politics we're seeing down south. Uh, as Neil noted, Myers, uh, after, you know, hockey ran its course, after he sort of hit rock bottom, he went back and studied substance abuse behavior health as a mature student in his 30s it takes a lot of uh, bravery to go back to school in your in your 30s speaking as the son of a someone who was a mature university student and of course you know Meyer's knowledge and sensitivity in that area you know did lead to him becoming the NHL's first player assistance director for three seasons with the Los Angeles Kings uh, now there are now this episode does relate to some of our other episodes uh Myers was a teammate of Joe Murphy in San Jose in the late 90s. Rick Westhead, of course, gave his time last fall to talk about Finding Murph, which is an investigative report on, you know, basically science denialism in hockey and the other commercialized collision sports. That book really covers the 90s when Myers was an active NHL player. He was also a teammate of, you know, Eric Lindros. There's a passage where Myers, he says he felt huge guilt because he was scratched for a game and he saw... Lindros just get flattened by Darius Kasparitis of the Pittsburgh Penguins and suffered a brain injury on the play. Myers was also in, I think, his first pro camp in, in Tampa Bay was at the same time as Manon Rayom, who joined us last fall to talk about the children's book about her life, uh, Breaking the Ice, uh, recently released in French as Brisseur Le Glace. Uh, you know, you get definitely get an uh, appearance from Bob Probert as well, too. Uh, so, like I say, Myers has come through. He he was, you know, an enforcer in the 90s, too. That was when the role, uh, in some ways, was refined. You know, teams were really drafting players exclusively, you know, to be fighters. And they wasn't like they were drafting guys who were normal-sized hockey players. They were looking for guys who were 6'4", 6'6", 230, 240 pounds. And, you know, eventually that sort of faded faded out of the game after the 2005 lockout uh and uh but he's sort of come through that and you know there are, are players who have sort of survived to tell those tales and we're grateful he can join us now please check our archive at sportslit.ca uh, you also interact with us on the talk about sportslit uh podcast facebook group i think we've tripled the membership in about the last th- three months and uh and you also uh we do have a our season five premiere is up and online yes. with uh, Spencer Haywood talking about the Spencer Haywood rule, which is about him being the first player who played, who came into the NBA while he was still still college basketball age. Thank you, Nate. Um, that's uh, that's well said. And yes, if you want to go to Sports Lit, you can buy this book today, the one we're going to be talking about, Painkiller, a memoir of big league addiction by Brant Myers, or any of the other books uh, we have had to date and all the future ones. That's sportslit.ca. Now, without further ado, we're going to come up with Brant Myers. Welcome back to Sports Lit. Nate and I are happy to be joined by Brant Myers, uh, who's going to discuss his new book, as we talked about in our intro. And so, Brant, uh, welcome, and I'm going to get right into the first question with you, and that is the book came out uh, a month ago this week on February 16th, and I wanted to know, has it been received how you initially perceived it would be? Like, what were your expectations when it was released? Oh, yeah. First off, hi, gentlemen, and thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Um, as far as the uh, as the feedback goes, you know, again, um, once the 16th hit, you know, that was a long time in the making, and I didn't know. I mean, it's one thing for me and my editor to, to like what we've put together it's another for the for the world to to get their hands on it 
and uh, it's been sort of overwhelming i mean i you know it was just the book's pretty raw and it's and, and uh, i took uh, took the blanket off a lot of the situations and um i didn't know how it was going to be received but i gotta say that uh, uh pretty happy about the, the, res- the response yes and yeah and brant how does you know you've had such a journey and how, do, how does uh, writing a book uh tie into you know sort of you know the ongoing you know theme with recovery and and you know being account and being account accountable to you know everyone in your life mm-hmm. uh well there's a chapter or a part in the book where i had 10 years of sobriety and uh, i found myself um thinking it was a good idea to uh to buy a bag of cocaine for a friend and i think that you know for me it was it was a real reminder that this is a daily reprieve uh from a disease that wants to kill me and um it, that sounds harsh but it's true and and if you know when i ended up finishing the book i sort of sat there and said to myself you know god has a funny way of inserting things in my life to keep me sober and the first one the big one was my daughter chloe and then now this book that's been released um is another huge motivation to uh, stay on track the before i get into my next question i wanted to ask you about uh uh the book cover i mean uh, how, how did did you have a uh a, a a say in that or was that just uh, the department with the publisher that that came up with the the way the look the yeah, excellent question so we worked on that cover for a long time months um basically i told them you know there's a couple things guys one i don't want my face on this thing um nothing against any other hockey books but i didn't want it to be a hockey book and i because it's not and um the the second thing was I had a friend that that did all my tattoos in Los Angeles. His name was Mr. Cartoon. Oh yeah, Mr. I know Mr. Cartoon. Yeah, did he work yeah. on cars too? Was he was he a, originally a car guy? Like he, he, the, he go ahead. Yeah, the the, the cars. Yeah, I, but but he's mostly known for his artwork. Right. And so he we we became close in Los Angeles when I worked there, and he did all my tattoos. And anyway, so we we're fondling with the idea of getting tuned to do the cover and um and then we decided at just in the last minute that we were going to let a lady named lisa jagger uh do it so the, the, there was a bit of the cartoon theme in there with the font of painkiller um she did the uh the stick and the skull with the roses and then i i said well i you know i want something to resemble hope on the on that cover and uh so we decided to to add the hummingbird that was flying uh to land on the hockey stick mm-hmm. and uh i thought she did an incredible job of it yeah yeah it's, it definitely stands out right away and it separates the book as you said there's a most books have especially of uh an athlete will have the athlete either playing or you know you think of like mm-hmm. someone like theo Fleury's book it's a shot of his face so um, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you look back on yourself then, a player suspended four times from the league before being banned for life, how do you understand mm-hmm. that that Brant today? Uh, wow, that's a, another sort of deep question. <laughs> yeah, only, I, on my, my, only on my first coffee, boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it, it's... I'll tell you what, again, this all really didn't make sense to me. Even the writing process, I didn't know what what I was really doing other than I was just getting honest with with the events in my life. And uh, when I received uh, the pre-author copies at my home that one day when they dropped, Amazon dropped them off, um, I just opened it up and, you know, I saw all the books. And uh, I've never really read the book like i i was so busy editing and stopping and and you know redoing this and that that when i was able to read through it uh and get in a rhythm i finished it uh, relatively quick within a day and it was the first time that i understood what i what I, what i did and 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 not only what i did as a as a project but what i did in my life um and i just you know my heart broke 
even me reading it, I had to put the book down a few times because I was getting extremely emotional. Uh, one, because I was proud, but two, because of the stuff that I actually went through. I mean, I know it's been a while since I've done it, but there are still pretty vivid memories of that stuff. Yeah, so it was almost like a forest for the trees thing, right? Because when you're in the process <laughs> of writing, you're not looking at the whole thing, right? You're you're looking at the trees, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they got a hold of me and <clears throat> or my my editor Nick Garrison, uh, who uh, basically took my manuscript and and literally brought it to life. Like he he was outstanding, um, but he was you know he's we have 1,100 corrections to do. And uh, so you can't really get in a rhythm of anything because you're always stopping. And it was the same with the audiobook. That took me 30-some hours to record. Uh, it wasn't until a week after the book was released when I was sitting at home and uh, I got the audiobook. Mm. And then I listened to that within, whatever, a day and a half or... So the experiences were completely different when I was alone by myself versus in a studio or, you know, editing all day. Right. Yeah. And uh, now you sort of say it's not a ho you said it was not a hockey book and, and we were always kind of resistant to labels. But what, what labels would would you put on it, Brent? Well, again, I, I'm not a label guy either. I think the reader can you know i've had i've had people that have that don't have addictions for instance there was a gentleman that had a a son in treatment out in uh, i believe arizona and he said i don't have an addiction problem i never have but my son has mm -hmm. and i was angry at my son i was angry at my son for for not getting it and your story helped helped that anger it helped me understand my boy better uh, I had a friend call me and talk to me about, you know what, I don't have an addiction problem either, but I think I'm going to give my parents a call today. You know, so there's different themes in the book. Yes, I was a hockey player, and, and I get all that. But I, I think that there's some, some deeper roots in there rather than just me putting the skates on. Yeah, and how much uh, do you think this book can help people understand the effects of, like, say, of what's often called intergenerational trauma you know from like parent to child and in back and forth oh well i hope it does i i've been trying to look back as my role as a father with chloe and uh some of the moments that we've shared where um you know my voice may have gotten a bit too loud or or whatever it may be and i instantly revert back to that little kid that i was and how sensitive we are as, as children and that some of those memories i mean when i remember the story of brad grabbing me when i was i, I think i was only five right. uh, that's pretty young to carry that memory with you for the rest of your life so um trauma can start at a, at a very young age and i think as parents we have to be very cautious of how we handle our uh, our children and and brad was your 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 mom's uh, boyfriend right or is it his correct yes yes okay. correct um, I, I wanted to ask you just um, about, and we're going to cover a lot of different topics here today, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, the process of entering treatment. And there's a, on, in, I think it's page 89 in, in your book, you, you talk about, I think it might have been the first time you went down to Malibu and just how, you know, quickly it can change. Uh, you know, you, you called your friend and, and drove back. And, and, and mm -hmm. so I just, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, you know, how hard it is, uh, you know, when you go in and, and how you, you know, how that whole process works until it works. Well, that that story has a connection to, um, I was extremely angry at the end of the 90 days. I thought, my belief, I was only going in for 28 days uh, or 30 days into treatment. They said I wasn't ready they're going to keep me another month. So I thought I was going back to, you know, I was getting out in 60 days to no, no, we're keeping you in another 30. I was fucking angry. Mm. And so I was almost like, yeah, I'll show you type of attitude. Mm. So 
the day before I got released, I got a bag of cocaine, and then I drove all the way back to Edmonton. Um, so really, I just was filled with with anger and and a, 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 the realization that the doctors from the league basically had me by my you know right. whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and um, if I didn't follow their every move well then i wouldn't be playing hockey anymore so i was extremely resentful at that point right um this book is focused obviously on you um but you played with joe murphy and and others who who who, who we may not know of who ended up uh, having some problems with addiction so i just wanted to know um you know now that you look back i mean maybe at the time you might have had tunnel vision but now that you look back i mean how many other players were around you from 94 to 03 during your career that you know may have had similar problems oh boy um i would say there was quite a few uh especially guys that did my role um unfortunately we we knew of uh you know three or four gentlemen that uh didn't do so well didn't make it very long in life right and uh then there was other guys that uh, that weren't fighters that struggled. Hey, listen, whether it's the National Hockey League or it's uh, you know the workforce at Amazon or the workforce at Canadian Tire, you're going to have people that are struggling with substance abuse. This isn't just something right. that's related to athletes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've seen uh, I've seen the numbers right now on uh, how it's been in the last calendar year with people's. Uh, addiction uh, diseases uh, I guess the percentages are through the roof so this just right. isn't something that's uh, pertained to sports right and and but something that did pertain to, to your hockey career and honestly you know made the you know gave me chills when I read it when you were talking about at one point when you were coming back into hockey and I think the words were once I was back I'd have to fight uh, how, how mm. would you sort of describe the kind of catch-22 you had like the NHL would help you <laughs> you know mm. with things but they yeah. kept on their on their terms but then you had to go right back to you know being an enforcer it, i know it was all it was almost like there was a there was a bigger percentage of me wanting to get caught like somebody else making the decision for me that i didn't have to go back and play hockey so that i didn't have to go back into the role not that the NHL or anybody ever made me do. Nobody ever made me be a fighter. That was Brant Myers, and that was something that I took on. But the reality was is that back then those roles were hired, and my role wasn't, you know, to be on the first line and and score goals. I, I knew what I had to do. So um, after I, you know, when I got, my, I think, my third suspension and I was in, in that sober living house in Los Angeles for six to nine months I just felt a relief like oh man I don't have to fight for at least nine months or a year mm. and um, so once you get reinstated the, the the anxiety would come back of, of sort of what's what the inevitable was and, and at the same time too that role I mean you you know there's the pride of you know trying to be a protector and like the passage that stuck out for me when you were when you were describing you know being up in the press box and seeing your teammate Eric Lindros get checked I think by Darius Kasparaitis like like and how did that mm. how does how does like sort of feelings of guilt you know attached to you know various anxieties well I'd, I've never had a problem fighting for my teammates like that stuff was easy like Big E gets hit or you know Mike Ricci gets laid out or well I, I'm I'm ready to rock like I did that's that's spontaneous where it was the premeditation that would would for me was the killer because you had 48 hours to think about it mm. like where if you're on the ice and a big hit happens you've got seconds to think about it mm. there's a big difference there of stewing in that for a day or two versus you know 30 seconds ready to get out for your next shift right um, and I, I wonder too. Like I, I, I remember reading a, a few. I don't have the book right in front of me right now, but I remember you know you writing about um, you know the fight, for example, against I think it was Larock, right in Edmonton, mm-hmm. 
and and mm-hmm. how that kind of went down and I, I guess I yeah I mean yeah stewing and thinking about these it, it, I mean we always from the outside I think you just you know you see the enforcer and you you just think both of them are you know they're gladiators and they're they're ready and ro- raring to go uh, but now I know in recent years we've heard about you know that there is this rumination you are thinking about what you have to do and in the case of for example the rock fight I know you won tons of fights but that one ended like severely badly right I mean it, mm-hmm. you're, you're um so it is interesting to 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 know about what you guys think before those fights that happen uh not instantaneously well, yeah with the Larock one I think when I was in bed for pregame and I and I write about shaking and I sort of can't stop my hands from shaking it what you know it, it was just I think all the years built up mm. into one moment that was going to happen I just stayed sober for two years to get my shot back in the National Hockey League after stage four mm. and now I've got to go and I've got to fight the toughest guy in the NHL my first game I mean you want to talk about stress right like like that's that's an incredible amount of stress that you're putting on someone or sorry that I'm putting on myself so when I got out there, it was almost like I knew what was going to happen. Like I, I, I was, I was down in weight. I was only weighing, I think I weighed in that morning at 214 pounds, and George was coming in at 275. Wow. I mean, I just had this feeling like this isn't going to go good. I didn't think my, I didn't think he was going to smash my, uh, my face up, right. but I didn't think I was going to win that one. And, and and just for the the people that haven't read the book, what happened was, and, and as we said, Brant won a lot of fights. In this case, of course, he came back after that long stretch, and and he, uh, I think, he smashed your orbital bone in your cheek, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, uh, yeah, a, a rough ending, obviously, to something you were you were essentially anticipating in fear of to some degree, just because of the weight differential and and how long you'd been away, um, mm-hmm. size differential. But yes, go ahead, me. Now, what something that's comes up a lot in the last third of the book, Brent. How did you sort of come to uh, explore your identi- identity as as a Métis? Well, I always knew that I had uh, uh, Aboriginal background. Uh, my dad's mom uh, was in was Indian, and um, so I had I had it in my blood, but I didn't realize that my uncle. Um, Charlie Weaselhead ran uh, Treaty 7 mm. out south of Calgary and uh, that I thought about um, the hockey academies that were all over the provinces but I never saw one that was catered to the needs of the Aboriginal uh, child and uh, so I built the program and it ended up going really well down there right um, and that was, I mean, that's toward the end of the book. That's, uh, that comes at a point when you've kind of gone through the science, you've studied, uh, you know, addiction, and now you're mm-hmm. you're looking for a place to apply it. So in a sense, uh, you know, the, your roots really helped you back to kind of the place where you are now, right, in a, in a, in a way? Uh, absolutely, yeah. That When I went and, and started that company in Calgary, I mean, boy, oh, boy, I... Uh, I felt a sense of purpose uh, in my life, which um, I, it, it was years before I ever felt that. And, uh, you know, it was just a recipe at that moment that uh, ended up working and uh, worked hard at it. And it set me up uh, for when the, when the job in L.A. was offered that, um, you know, it was a nice transition. The, so as it stands, just for clarity right now, um, where so what is, what are you officially doing right now? Are you still uh, with the Kings, or have you moved on to a to some some a different role? Yeah, no the the, the job in Los Angeles ended in the uh, after the 2018 season, right? And then literally, relatively quick after that, I got a I got the offer from. Uh, Penguin Random House to to finish my book, mm-hmm. and um, once COVID hit, it was actually for me it was good. I mean, I was just staying at home and and writing, and and then now, um, 
you know, for me, this is just about continuing to spread the message. I mean, it's only right. been out a month, but uh, I think this can help a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of what Nate was just mentioning about the spirituality and, 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 and your roots, you know, you do mention, you know, religion in the book. Um, I just want to know how the two combine now, uh, you know, uh, to to kind of help you in your day-to-day because, you know, there seems to be an indication of, you know, spirituality and also, the, you know, the traditional, um, you know, religion, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, I've never actually... As far as religion goes, I've never even thought of that in that term. Mm-hmm. I I believed that uh, I believed in God, mm-hmm. and my God isn't necessarily a man with a beard and a cane. Right. Um, it's my version of what I believe to be a higher power and what's created everything that we see around us. And um, uh, I think that when I finally let go of fighting and and uh you know sorry if they want to say you know turn your life over um because my way wasn't working anymore it was just me running the or driving the boat it was just crashing right and uh, all of a sudden um the obsession to want to continue to ruin my life or drink or do drugs was was lifted i never I never had any, but that only came after that prayer that I had of when I really got on my knees and, and asked for, for help. So, um, and I continually do, I mean, it's been 13 years and I think that uh, without my connection to my God, um, there's no way I would have stayed sober. It's interesting too, because I don't know if you've ever read Derek Sanderson's book and I I don't know if you've talked to him, but there is that there's that element that runs through his book as well in his life, which which I found very interesting mm-hmm. and a comparable. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, and thanks for sharing that, Brent. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, today when we hear about uh, NHL players, the league's younger, and we hear, oh, you know, all they want to do is play Fortnite, and they don't go out anymore, and because the cameras are out, so I, 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 and, you know, people take photos of them. So I wanted to know. Um, you know how much ha- I mean has that made the addiction problem lesser? Is it is is the league I guess for a lack of a better word cleaner today? Because you've seen it, you were with the Kings, so I mean, how is today's young player different from maybe uh, when Brant Myers entered the league in the '90s or someone before him in the '80s or '70s? Well, I guess all I can talk about is when I played, and you know. We were just, yes, I was drinking a lot and doing whatever, but my God, did we have fun together as a team. Right. You know, we were always, even if it was only maybe six, seven guys, we were out having dinner every night and, and playing cards and, and whatever. Like, but we were just hanging out. And, you know, for instance, when I was um, working with the, with the Kings, you know, one thing that I did notice is that uh, – when I got on the bus, and I usually sat at the front of the bus after the game, the players would get on, and it'd be dark out. We'd be driving on the plane, and I'd look back, and all you'd see is like 24 lights, which would mean mm. everybody was staring at their phone. Nobody was talking to each other. Right. You know, and I just sort of thought to myself, wow, like back when I played, you know, we were, you know, the back of the bus was where you wanted to be, you know. Right. Like that's where Paul Coffey and and Lindros and and all these guys would sit, and I'd want to be sitting back there talking about the game. Or um, so now, you're right; it is more secluded and isolated with these guys. And think about this year. I mean, at least mm-hmm. when I played, we had roommates on the road. Yeah. Like, you know, you walk into the to the to the room and put your bags down, put your feet up on the bed, and start laughing, watching. TV tell some stories. These guys go into their rooms now. It's it's quiet. It, it's silent. Mm. So, and you can and, and then you can hide your addiction a lot better that way too. Right. Right. Yeah. Tr- true. Like how? Like I mean, and how much? Uh, like how much is that? Like one of the great things about hockey, just the fact that everyone you know contributes to sort of having these tight knit groups, or, or at least did when when you were playing. Pardon me, sir. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I, I was just sort of wondering about like how, you know hockey. What it, you know when when it's when uh, a, when you have a positive group, uh, how much it 
you know, that togetherness that really, really helps people develop. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was talking with a friend who's playing uh, on a team here. And he just said, you know what, Mizey, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through the year. He said, this is just so taxing on me, my family. Um, I feel so lonely and isolated and distant from everybody. And it's not just me. It's, you know, it's a lot of guys. And uh, and I really I really feel for them. And then, you know, so you take that with, with guys not wanting to leave their rooms or their apartments or whatever they're in. And then, uh, you know, popping this or popping that uh, becomes the norm. And is is that the actual, like, a bigger potential problem maybe in this day and age than maybe in the past? It's a, you know, the opioids, for example, rather than alcohol? Uh, correct. Okay. And something yeah. something that is interesting too, Brent, uh, what what can you sort of tell us about the, the program, you know, where you studied at Mount Royal University in Calgary, like, and, like, just what, what it took for you, for you for you to go back into that classroom in your 30s and then what what sort of pathways that opened for you well i knew at some point that if i was going to be standing in front of a general manager that i wanted to have some type of certification or standing in front of the nhl or the nhlpa that was just that was just a given so but i couldn't afford to go back to school so when the league offered to pay for me to go back to school in Calgary I just I jumped at the opportunity and I was actually really excited to uh, to start learning again I mean I haven't I think I've, I did finish grade 9 I, I took a few courses in grade 10 that was really about it I mean so it's been a while since I learned so and now I'm learning about me and that was a very interesting subject to me because I'm like geez man I get a I get a course on Brandt here um, <laughs> and I didn't I was embarrassed actually when I was right before I opened the door as I was walking into school I had a bit of embarrassment but once I opened the door and saw other people in there that were in their late 20s or early 30s it it made me feel a lot better and then just I just enjoyed uh, you know putting in a good day's work uh, opening the books um you initially got in with the Kings through, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, through Dean Lombardi when he was there. I'm just wondering, I know you've throughout the book, Daryl Sutter's name comes up as someone who really looked up to and really looked out for you. So now that he's back in the league, could you see yourself jumping in with maybe the Flames at all because of that connection? Well, Calgary is the only team in the NHL that has a, that hired a guy like me uh, a year after I was hired in LA, they hired Brian McGratton mm. in that same role. So he's been there for five, four years now. Right. So probably not in Calgary. Right. Um, but it's probably, is it something you'd want to do again with another team? Um, kind of what you're doing in LA? Um, I guess it would, there's a lot, there's a lot of different factors that would have to play into that. I mean, the, the job in Los Angeles, um, you know, it, it, it worked. I, I was away from home though a lot. Right. And um, it, it, I don't know. I don't know if this, uh, the possibilities could turn into a league initiative, mm. you know, versus just one team. Right. Um, uh, why, why segregate the program to just one team? Yeah. Um, you know, like, yeah. So, so my view would probably be on a bigger scale than just, uh, you know, the, the 23 guys. Well, that's really interesting you brought up why segregated to one team because initially, before the, uh, I think it was 96 when the substance abuse program came in, the joint program, it was up to the team, wasn't it? And there was no counselor, which probably... That, that's you know, right. Which, that's right. Bob Probert made them start that program. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. for, for our listeners, maybe could, could you give a little bit of a background on, on how that program came to be in 1996? Yeah, I think it was after uh, Bob Prober uh, went to jail. Uh, I think he spent six months or three months in jail. Right. And the league didn't have anything. They were they were letting the owners or the you know the teams sort of decide how they wanted to to deal with their players if the players um, got caught. I believe one of the first 
first players, the second players to get caught with cocaine was was Grant Fear. Mm. And um, so the PA, the NHLPA, and the, and, the, and the league uh, decided that they were going to to build a substance abuse program for the league. And then uh, Bob Probert was, I guess, the poster boy at that time to get it started. And now they've had that program uh, with the same doctors in place uh, since 1995, I believe. There's a in in the book. There's quite the story about you and Proby Bob Probert sharing a room, um, at, with, and and basically you know how he dr- said he was going to drive back to Chicago uh, that <laughs> night. It's a it's a really it, for those out there that are going to pick up this book. It's I mean it's full of stories like that, and you know it's a it's it's very eye opening. Um, uh, I want to I want to ask you about uh, you know in the last I'm going to roughly ballpark this let's say five to eight years we've seen a lot of beer companies pushing non-alcoholic beer in commercials and you see it sold everywhere and you know obviously they're jumping on this trend because of market research and they don't want to get left behind and you know we've mm-hmm. been hearing about the dangers of alcohol for you know at least 40 years in schools and such so what i mean what do you what's going on behind the scenes do you think that's making these these alcohol especially beer companies uh you know market this alternative that you there's no alcohol in this beer mm-hmm. well i don't know why i enjoy them yeah, fair enough um, no but but, yeah, but it seems but, that there, there but, less and less people are you know, there's probably more and more people that want would you know want that option. I think perhaps maybe knowing the 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 dangers of alcohol. Yeah, again, speaking from from myself and from the uh, statistics on people that are incarcerated and that die in car accidents every year, I believe that alcohol is actually probably one of the worst ones mm-hmm. out of uh, out of all of them. To tell you the truth, yeah. Um, I did things when I was drunk that I never did when I was high on cocaine. Yeah. And um, not to, and listen, I'm not putting down alcohol because I, I have lots of friends that are social drinkers that can go out and have, you know, one or two drinks or mm-hmm. maybe one because they say I have to drive home. Yeah. But there are millions that don't. Right. And and you see it in the statistics every year. So for them to be pushing non and, and I got to quite be quite honest with you, I didn't have any non-alcoholic beers until uh, I guess it would have been a couple years ago, three yeah. years ago when they came out with the Heineken zero point zero, where it actually tasted. Yeah, I love yeah. the taste of booze. <laughs> like I, I I just do. I, I wish they had a non-alcoholic Jack Daniels. I mean, I'd be all over it. Soon, you never um, know. <laughs> yeah, but they don't right. at the moment. So, um, so good, good on them for for, for pushing that out. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Ice Gladiators, um, but uh, you know there was a lot of press after the Chris Chris Nyland's movie came out, and, and it was, you know, there was the triple whammy of Bugard Rippin and Belak dying, and I just wanted to know: is it important uh, to you that we acknowledge that there's a whole group of fighters? Like you know Kelly Chase, who was behind the Ice Gladiators movie, Stu Grimps and Joe Coaster, that you know maybe didn't have the same problems as this other kind of group of enforcers, and, and just to kind of not kind of blame everything on the role. Do you think there's an importance in that to kind of balance things out? Well, to each his own. I mean, listen, uh, I know that uh, I don't know who didn't didn't struggle with the role. I believe that. Stu Grimson said that it was extremely mentally taxing on him mm. as a as an individual. I don't know who it wouldn't be taxing on, um, but as far as you know, the, what I went through and the fighters that I've talked to after you know we played against each other or had a beer together, sure, uh, they didn't look forward to doing that. Right. I mean, there might be a few of them out there that really enjoyed to fight. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't that they weren't the majority. Mm. And and with respect to fighting, thinking back to your junior days, uh, you wrote that when you were in your 17 year old season in the Western Hockey League, you had 45 fights. So of course that piqued my curiosity, and I went and checked the last season that the WHL completed. I, no team had that many fights. I kind of wondered, you know, having worked with youth, you know, where where you see the responsibility of maybe junior league to sort of guide the public and remembering, Hey, those are at somebody's, you know, 
18 year old out, out there and there's you know a lot of risk in having in having too many fights in in junior hockey well sure the, the other thing too it's like all right you know i'm gonna go out and fight all these times i'm, I'm only getting 60 bucks every two weeks i mean you know it's like well maybe pay me a little bit more um <laughs> but 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 no I, I again i have a daughter that's going to be 15 in two years and you know that's when my first fist fight came on the ice mm-hmm. i couldn't imagine you know her going to play gymnastics or soccer and squaring off with uh, a girl in the field with thousands of people watching her two years from now i'd just be sick to my stomach yeah um it, you know so it, having their de- in my opinion you know these, these kids need to be well They've, from what I understand, in the Canadian Hockey League, um, the junior leagues, they've uh, capped it out now. I think to five fights or something like that. Um, I used to have that in a week, so uh, they've definitely went in the in the direction of, uh, if you want to say, eliminating it. Yeah, I'll I'll admit I'm not not as current on the on the Canadian Hockey League as I used to be. I remember the OHL started with. First it was ten, and then I think they dropped it to three, and I'm not sure if the other leagues. Yeah, I think cat. it's three now. Yeah. I think it's three fights, and then you get suspended. Yeah, no, it's it's phased out, you guys. It, it really is. I mean, I think in the next ten years, you're gonna, you know, gonna have a lot of these kids that are be going, you know, hey, you guys actually used to fight in the NHL. Well, yeah, and I mean, be like, yeah, 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 we did. <laughs> what, what, what were some of the things when you were had when you had a uh, Greater Strides Hockey Academy? What were some of the biggest things you learned from the the young people that you were you know you, that you were mentoring in that environment? Oh, I just think on how much they appreciated what they that they were getting to do for free because the uh, some of the oil companies that paid they paid it all, so these kids were coming. Uh, they just had to show up, and they were there for three days and. They got to swim and skate and play outdoor activities and you know we'd bring an elder in and they'd get to learn about their the traditions of you know their background and it was just awesome and and uh i don't know i i i took a lot of pride in in, in what we did there I, I wasn't becoming rich by any means and it wasn't about the money mm-hmm. um it was just something that i was really proud of putting together for them I guess uh, I got two last questions for you. The first one is, uh, when you were studying uh, at Mount Royal, as Nate uh, brought up, I mean, what did you learn about uh, addiction in terms of um, the how how circumstance relates to, you know, uh, the biology of a person? Like, what what comes together to to create someone who may be predisposed to to uh, mm-hmm. something like this? Did, what did you learn about that? Well, I think for me, when I was studying the the chemistry and the I guess the um, the thought patterns that go into someone that's addicted, there's you know predisposed elements of uh, your DNA makeup, and I and I was uh, predisposed with my mother, uh, who currently is still suffering from mental illness. Uh, my grandparents, who I lived with, were uh, both daily drinkers. Um, so I had the gene and I think that that was one of the first times in my last rehab especially where I started to understand the psychology behind or the aspect behind the disease aspect because I kept thinking I wasn't strong enough I'm like what's wrong with me like why can't I get a handle on this I do good for a little bit and then I I fall right back in the trap Mm. and I had to understand it was a very simple um, model that I had was that if you were told that you had a certain disease or you know cancer or whatever it may be and your medicine was that you had to get chemotherapy three four times a week or you die mm-hmm. would you do it yes of course you would well I had to have that same mentality with alcoholism mm-hmm. that if I don't take my medicine and my medicine consists of prayer and meditation, reaching out to fellow addicts and alcoholics, going to uh, recovery meetings. I'm going to get sick at some point. So that, I, I just boiled it down to as simple as I could. Right. 
And I guess lastly, Brent, um, I wanted to ask you, how, today, how can a player reach out to you if they're having trouble? I mean, do you have an open channel uh, for that, um, just being Brant Myers, uh, who's, who's gone through all of this and has in the past uh, worked as a person that's helped people through these things? Yeah, my social media, I've been active daily on responding from people that have read the book or um, that may be having some issues. I have, I have no issues with that at all. Um, it is a little bit overwhelming when uh, <laughs> the amount of messages that you get, so you try to make sure that you get back to everybody. But it's just under Brant Myers on Facebook or uh, Instagram or Twitter. Very easy to find me. Well, Brant, um, first of all, this has been great. Uh, I know I speak for Nate when I say that. Thank you for giving us so much of your time and, and, and so much of yourself in the book. Um, we, we enjoyed it, if that's the word you can use. I mean, it's very, very heavy, but well-written. Um, and, um, yeah, thanks for sharing uh, your journey. Absolutely, guys, and uh, you guys have a, have a great week. I appreciate it.